If you are just joining us today, we have been looking together over these past weeks at the life of great groups. We've been looking at uh, those particular kinds of families and work groups and teams that not only are able to survive and thrive together amidst the pressures of life at a level that many other kinds of circles don't, but which are also able somehow to produce or shape individuals who go on to be far more resilient in the face of life's pains and losses and stresses than those who have not had the experience of being part of a circle like this. Uh, If you're a student of history at all, you know that there is no community in the course of the human journey that has proven itself more enduring, even amidst staggering pains and losses at times, or which has succeeded in producing stronger individuals, able to face life with courage and resilience. No community that has been as effective as, at this as the church which Jesus Christ founded. And so I thought it would be particularly helpful for us today as we continue on our journey of exploring the characteristics that go into these kinds of of unbreakable circles to look together at the life of the early church through the lens of the first description that God's Word gives us of that church. I want to welcome you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2 and read uh, with me. I'm going to read out loud and you can read along in silence as I unpack um, something of the life of the church through verses 42 and following. Hear the word of the Lord with me, if you would. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I don't know if you picked up a common theme in those verses, but what hits me is I study this passage, and in fact, as I've read my way through the rest of the book of Acts over the years, is how the early church, the first Christians, spent such a remarkable amount of time together. Did you pick that up? How often that word together came up in the course of our scripture reading. I mean, church for these people was clearly not just a 90-minute experience that happened once a week that you went to someplace. Church is a many-hour, multiple-day identity and community that you belong to and which goes with you everywhere that you move in life. Those first Christians, as you read with me a moment ago, are studying God's Word together on a regular basis. Uh, They're praying together. They are watching the wonders of God's grace uh, as He works in their midst. They are sharing their resources in order to meet 
the needs of others together. They are meeting in the temple courts together. They are praising God and inspiring uh, the community, the favor of the world around them together. They are seeing God rescuing people from what troubles and tempts and threatens people together. And if you take nothing else from this passage today, please note this, the ground from which all of the resilient good that grew up out of the church over time was the ground of all of this time that they spent together with God and one another. That that somehow this time that they invested was an indispensable part of the great cord of their community. Now, I want to make a confession to you today, and this is not um, something which I've said before, but for a lot of years in my own journey as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have often felt at certain moments that something was missing for me. Even as a pastor, there have been these times when I have felt like just Something about the Christian life and experience was for me not as satisfying as, as, as I'd heard it was supposed to be and as I was even teaching other people it was supposed to be. It, that became an even more acute experience for me when I came to a big church. When I moved from a, a, an environment where I pretty much knew everybody's name and a lot of their stories and was at most of the hospital bedsides and, and, and experienced life in a, in a more intimate way with them. But I found myself, uh, over time, in my church experience, wishing that I had deeper relationships. I had so many great experiences being part of the church. I continue to. I love to, to experience the power of God together, to watch his word you know, shaping and touching my character and my life as I know it does all of us. It's been a joy to see our mission outreach, changing lives for the good. But I secretly have wondered at times... Where's the deep fellowship? Where's the profound sense of intimacy? Where's the deep togetherness that Christianity is supposed to be all about? I mean, I am around a lot of great people, (laughs) you know, a lot of the time. I'm aware, just at least dimly, of just the amazing stories that exist in the lives of so many people in our congregation, but I'm not forming relationships with people nearly as satisfying as I, as I frankly had when I was younger in my journey in life. And I don't know if any of others of you can, you can relate to this from your own experience, perhaps. Did any of you have a gang of friends when you were kids? Raise your hand if you ever had a real gang of friends. Yeah, I did. I had a group of buddies, Joe and Rich and Dan and Dennis and John, a bunch of these other guys, and we did everything together, right? We, we got on the bus or we walked to school together. We attended classes together. We, we played thousands of hours of ping pong and pool together, right? We ate I don't know how many slices of pizza together and listen to bazillions of hours of music together. We, 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 we mourned over our losses in love together. We, we bragged and frankly exaggerated about our victories in sports together. I mean, these guys and, and, and I, we just did life together. We got braces together and acne together and arrested together. 
and somehow a high school diploma together. And all of that time together produced these unbreakable bonds. And this resilience to life because we knew we had each other. Come what may. When I, when I went on to college in New Haven, I, I already had this strength in my life. I, I was not actually out searching for new best friends. As Bill Clark sometimes says, you know, the, the relational Lego of my life had all its little nibs covered up already. I was good. I, ha- I had these great guys that I was still in touch with. Back in the days when we used landlines. You remember those days when we had telephones? And, 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 and so as a result of this, um, I just sort of moved through my environment a little differently. I, I kept on meeting new people. There were a lot of new people at Yale. I joined every club and committee that would have me as a member. Did I confess to you that I am pathologically extroverted? <laughs> I mean, it's a disease. I, there's not a room I go into and sit down at a table where I'm not thinking, could I get up and work the room? Would the people mind at my table if I just met some more people? <laughs> and so I'm doing this all over the, the, the university campus, meeting all kinds of people. I met more of them when I moved um, to Northern Ireland uh, after college, spent two years living over there. And then I met more folks when I attended graduate school in New Jersey. And then there were more when I moved to San Francisco and even more when I, we lived down in San Diego and more still when God brought our family here to Illinois where God spends his summers. Obviously, look outside. But to be honest, I think that I developed along the way what I've come to call relational ADHD. What I mean is that I'm hyperactive when it comes to the number of relationships I juggle. I'm really hyperactive in this respect. But there's a deficit when it comes to giving any of those relationships the sustained attention needed for them to become really deep, intimate, satisfying, life-giving relationships in the way that God has in mind. And, And sadly, as I've gone through my own journey in life, even those best friendships that I had, they just slipped away. Not entirely, but to a serious degree, because I've not been able to tend to them. And I feel sometimes today like my relational pool is an ocean wide and a puddle deep. And I've got a heart for lots and lots of people, but little time to actually meet with any of them. Do you understand this in your own experience in any way? Does this happen for other people too? I wonder if this condition was was something of the backdrop to what the writer to the Hebrews was thinking 
when he wrote long ago, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit now of doing. Several months back, some couples in our church family invited Amy and and me to go out for dinner with them, and the purpose was, I discovered when I got there, was to celebrate my birthday. I was the guest of honor. And and I I had been in a small group Bible study with, um, with several of these guys. I had not spent a lot of time, relatively speaking, with their spouses, and I thought, great, it's going to be good to get to know these folks better, right? I mean, it's it's nice to have a few good friends in your advancing age, right? So, so we went out for dinner, and we had a, a marvelous time. Several days later, I mean just a few days later, we got another invitation to get together with this very same set of couples, and I thought, wow, we're going to see those same people again? <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of other people out there. We're going to see the same ones? So soon? But off we went, and it was another terrific time together. And this time, the conversation went even deeper, and the vulnerability of the storytelling got even more intimate, and and the conversation was really significant this time. And then before I knew it, the wives were starting to get together for lunch. And then they joined a class, and they were going out now in the evenings to these classes together, and and I was meeting together on Fridays with some of these guys, and one weekend, not that long ago, we had dinner together on Friday night, lunch together on Saturday, and dinner together again on Sunday night. And, And I'm thinking, secretly, gosh, this is out of control. I have got a lot of different people that would like to be on my calendar or that I would like to have on my calendar. I've got all of these activities and all of these events that can't get on the schedule because I'm spending all this time with these people. Do they not get how busy I am? Do they not understand how many friendships I need to be juggling? And then, then I figured it out. These people were not interested in just being friends. They were interested in being church. Like we read about in the book of Acts. They were interested in building the kind of deep relationship with a a set of people that would enable them to face anything in life. That that, that would give them a context where no pain or doubt or failure could not be shared there. That would create the kind of circle where no crisis in our health or calamity in our workplace or catastrophe with our kids or, or any other issue would not be endured better because there was a circle of really 
committed support there. They were interested in being part of the kind of environment where no leap of faith, no, no growth of character, no act of Christian service would not eventually get spurred on as we journeyed with one another. They wanted to be church. And somehow these people had figured out that the kind of transparency and trust and truth-seeking that God uses to transform human life doesn't happen without spending a lot of time together. Do you, do you feel me on this? Do you get this, what they were feeling? Um, if you want a great family, if you want a, a great work group, a great team, then it is critical to spend a lot of time together. That's why we were out Friday night celebrating somebody else's birthday. The psalmist once wrote, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessings. How pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity, for it's there that God bestows his blessing. Now that word dwell there is a really intriguing one because it literally refers to the act of pitching your tent. It's a camping word. Uh, it's It's an image of pitching your tent, sharing a campsite with somebody the way the ancient Bedouins did the way that was common in the ancient world. And to dwell literally means to get down on the ground with other people, throw your food and your fortunes together, and commit yourselves to being companions on the unpredictable journey of life. That's what it means to to, to dwell with someone. And interestingly enough, we meet this very same term, dwell, in the New Testament. We meet it in in that verse in John chapter 1 and verse 14 when the apostle John is trying to sum up the wonder of the, uh, the disciples' encounter with Jesus. And he says in that incredible verse... How marvelous it is that the divine word, which means uh, in, in Greek speak and, and in Hebrew speak of that time, it meant the, the divine mind, the, the logos that created everything and that sustains everything. How marvelous that the divine word chose to become human flesh so that he could, what? Dwell amongst us. Pitches tent amongst us. Travel with us. And what John is saying is that God wanted much more, much, much more than a now and then, ricochet here and there, relational ADHD form of of connection with us. Right? He he was going to overcome the human tendency to think that God could be related to only in that kind of way. Once a week, when you went to the temple, or or when you said the prayer over the meal, he wanted to try and give us a vision that a life with him could be a dwelling kind of thing. And so God slows himself down. God focuses himself in. He takes these very deliberate steps to love us in a dwelling sort of way. 
And then Jesus turns around, having modeled this to his disciples, and he says, as I have loved you, you go on and love one another, okay? We've had three years. I've modeled this for you. Now you go out and do this. You keep doing this. You help other people discover this. It's going to change the world if you do this. I'm going to use it to change the world. My question for you this morning is, who are you dwelling with these days? Who are you doing life with in this kind of way? Who might you invite uh, to share this kind of deeply satisfying, truly together kind of life that we see modeled by Jesus and the church that he founded? And what do you need to perhaps stop doing? What engagements do you need to let go of? What superficial kinds of connections do you just need to stop even trying to juggle at all in order to have the margin that you need to dwell more intentionally, to meet more regularly, to love more fully a few really important people in your life. Hear me very clearly on this. This is the most important thing we'll say. This is the big idea for the day. In the quest to build an unbreakable group or more resilient kinds of people, there is simply no substitute for spending significant quantities of quality time together. There's just no substitute for it. I've been thinking this past week of a particular Saturday that I uh, spent many years ago now. And I remember it was a day much like this past Saturday was. The sun was shining. It was a gloriously beautiful day. And I need you to know that back in those days, this was before my heart attack, I spent Saturdays um, almost every minute of every Saturday and a lot of Saturday night writing the sermon. That was kind of my preoccupation for the day. It was the, I would let everything else fill up the week and I'd finally get to the message on Saturday. And this particular Saturday, I started out that way. But but my eight-year-old uh, son, Cole, had been clamoring for my attention uh, with an insistence in recent days. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a little time with Cole today. So, 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 so we had breakfast together, and then we decided, let's go out and we'll have a bike ride. So we went off on a bike ride. And, and I don't mean it was just out to point A and back. I mean, we really... We surveyed the whole community we lived in. We rode up and down at just about every street. We wound up at Train Bridge in Hinsdale, that old rickety bridge they're renovating, and we stood up there and we watched the old locomotives lumbering on beneath our feet and felt the rumble and marveled at that. And for an eight-year-old, that's a big deal. And for me, even, it was kind of a big deal. And we wandered into town, and uh, eventually we rode our bikes around a little bit more, and then we... We had lunch together, and we ate ice cream together, and, uh, and then we rode our bikes some more, and then we laid down, we came home, and we laid down in the grass in our backyard, and we stared up at the sky, and we picked out animals, 
and other shapes in the cloud formations, and we talked about those things. And before I knew it, it was mid-afternoon. And now I am starting to feel like a trapped animal. I, I am starting to think, whoa, I let this day slip away, and I'm going to have to speak to all these people tomorrow that are going to expect me to say something coherent and faithful and, and, and articulate, and, and I'm not even close to being ready for that. And I'm just, my stomach is boiling, and I, and I say, okay, Cole, we got to go in now, and we go into the house, and I even ask to be pardoned from dinner so I can get to the computer and get working, and I'm pecking away at the computer, and my, and, and, and and just furiously working, and my wife comes in, and she says, Cole wants to see you. He's gone to bed. He wants to see you. And I went, oh, no. And so I hastily got up. I went upstairs. I went into Cole's room, and I, and I, and I said my quick goodnight prayer with him, and I pecked him on the forehead, and I turned to go out of the room. When he spoke up, the question came, how was your day, Dad? How was your day? It's a familiar question in our house. We always ask it at dinner. We always check in, let everybody report in, answer a long, full answer to that question. We, I hadn't been at dinner. He wanted to know, how was your day? And I said, that oh, was a good day. Though, though, frankly, I was thinking I'd wasted too much of it because I had to get on to something important. And so out of politeness, I, I, I turned back and I said, how was your day, Cole? And he answered softly, it was the best day of my life, Dad. I got to spend it with you. That eight-year-old is, is 18 now, six foot two inches tall. And on Wednesday, we put him aboard an airplane bound for California in his freshman year of college. And I cried. And I cried hard all the way home. Amy offered to homeschool him for college. It's not too late, she said. <laughs> but I did not cry because I didn't think he was ready for it. I didn't cry because I didn't think he could handle it. <laughs> because by God's grace, my son Cole, I mean, like our other boys, Russian Reed too, he's had the benefit of spiritually rich, best friendships. And through our youth ministry, He's been a member of multiple phenomenal small groups. He has known the benefit of weekly worship in a wonderful church near you. And, and, and he's been part of a household that did make family meals a huge priority and checking in with each other and praying there a big priority. He's been in all of these different blessed circles where, who, who, who's, who's whose commitment to one another was real, that provided real encouragement to one another, and where communication happened. Three of the critical strands, the secrets to resilience, commitment, encouragement, communication. He's been part of a place where those things happened, not perfectly, but regularly enough. And God has used all of these things to make 
my boys, that son, a resilient, courageous young Christian person. But you know what? I still wish I had had more of those Saturdays. I mean, I don't know how to put a price tag on Saturdays like that. I wish I had managed more often to overcome the pull of my ADHD life and really dwell even more with my family, with a a few very deep friends, with God himself. And I pray for the power and I ask for the focus to do it even more in the days ahead. And I hope you will join me if the Holy Spirit may be stirring you likewise. I hope you'll join me. Because, you know, this, this time together, even now, even now, this time together that we spend, it's not an empty ritual. It's not just a social convention. This time together that we spend is a major strand of what our glorious God uses to make us truly unbreakable. Please pray with me. Lord, we're reminded that when children spell love, they often spell it T-I-M-E. And we remember that you do too. All of eternity, all of this universe are yours to enjoy, and yet you chose to become flesh that you might dwell among people. You walk this earth surrounded by thousands of people clamoring constantly for your attention, yet you chose to spend so much of your time pouring yourself into just 12 people or just three or just one woman at a well, one man in a tree. Lord, help us to be more like you. Lead each of us to do something this week that overcomes the fragmenting pull of our ADHD world and which moves us into spending precious time together with someone sacred, with some sacred circle of people. And in this way, Lord, please, please lead us into the best days of our life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Amen.